Welcome to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Today, I was lucky enough to catch up with Randall Reeves aboard Moly, just about three weeks after he successfully completed his record-breaking figure eight voyage. Randall's voyage took him down to the Southern Ocean where he circled Antarctica, passing Cape Horn twice, then up the Atlantic to Nova Scotia, through the Northwest Passage, around Alaska, and back down to San Francisco from where he'd started. I spoke to Randall throughout his voyage, at least figure eight voyage 2.0, his second attempt. We talked first when he was sailing in the Southern Ocean, then from Halifax and the Aleutian Islands, and today it was great to catch up with him now that he's completed the trip. So let's dive right into the interview. Enjoy. Okay, Randall, let's start. Um, Tell us where we are and what the setting is. We are sitting in the cockpit of Moli at KKMI Boatyard in Point Richmond, California on a beautiful sunny day on November 10, and I haven't done the math, but I think we're about 18 days since I sailed under the Golden Gate Bridge back on October 19. Now you'll have to do the math because I've given you both (laughs) dates. Um, And that's where we're talking from. We're back in California. Congratulations are in order. Because uh, this is the third third time we've had you on the podcast. I think that's the fourth. Fourth time, that's right. I think. Fourth time you've been on the podcast, and it is the completion of our figure eight series on Out the Gate podcast. So, thank you for being the most frequent guest on the show. Well, thank you. Oh, most frequent, most frequent. Oh, wow. Nobody else has been on as many what an times. Honor. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun uh, connecting the dots over the last uh, year. Now, has it been two years of interviews or just the one? When did we start? Uh, two years of interviews, in fact. The last time I was sitting aboard Moly, we didn't do an interview, but it was when we met yep. in 2017, and it was September of 2017. I remember it vividly because you were just about to depart on Figure Eight Version One. I was about to sail around the world. Yes. And you were in the process of sailing around the bay, as I recall. <laughs> That's right. I on was a, a slightly different slightly yacht, different of boat, different dimensions, and somewhat less draft than Mo. Yes. Um, <laughs> What has happened to that dinghy? Oh, that dinghy is back in the possession of Heather Richards. Oh, okay. Whose who's, uh, boat it is. Um, and I, it's in a storage shed somewhere, but it served me quite well. It was a little yeah, little less roomy, but it was a fun little <laughs> adventure of, of my own. But you I were loved, kind enough for... Sorry yeah, I loved no. seeing, uh, just to reminisce for a second, I loved seeing the dinghy rafted up next to Mo. It, it was, was really, a really great photo. It was <laughs> wonderful. And how I met you was that uh, Heather said, oh, yeah, I have, I have a friend at KKMI. If you're going through Richmond, you should really just you know, ask him if you can raft up. And you were kind enough to say, don't sleep on that tiny little thing. <laughs> use my bunk. I'm not going to be aboard. So yeah. I got the, the honor of sleeping aboard Molly before you took her around the world. Yeah. And uh, that was fabulous. That was great. That so, was a good meeting. Yeah. Looking back, Thinking back to before you took off the first time, I remember you telling me about this ambitious project and actually showing me on the map where you were going. When you think back to that time, did you think you would be sitting here two years later having saying, did it, done? 
Did you, or would you not even let yourself go there? You very definitely don't even let yourself go there. I mean, you at that point in a project are so busy getting ready. You, you, you know that the project will have length, right? You'll be gone if things go well for about a year. But you're really only thinking a few days ahead at that point. You know, where is the canned milk after all? Did I bring everything that I said I should bring on the Excel spreadsheet? So yeah, I, I had no vision whatever for what it would be like to actually return. And in fact, I didn't really begin to feel like I was closing the loop until well after the last ice in the Northwest Passage. Mm. I remember before I entered the ice in the Northwest Passage, there was this feeling of, God, we're so close to home. I had that to, what, 35,000 miles at that point and only about 10 or, or even less than 10 to get home. But I felt so far away because there was this 500 miles of really difficult ice between us. And I think it was, it, I was well past Dutch Harbor, back into the Gulf of Alaska before I began to think, oh, I might actually do this. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and we spoke when I think you were in the Aleutians. And even then you were, you know, I can't focus on yet yeah. on the return. I have to still think about where I am right now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, the Aleutians were challenging. I, I got there late in the season, as did we all, everyone who was headed to the Northwest Passage that year. And everyone I talked to, all the locals I talked to, kind of shook their head and said, dude, you got to get moving. Uh, you're going to get stuck here in the winter if you don't get out. And so it was, it was challenging. The weather was not great, I, mm. as it often is up there. Yeah. And, you know, at some point you just have to say, well, it's, it, it's not going to get any better, so let's just dive ahead. And it took a while. It took uh, some southing before I began to feel like, yeah, you know what, I, we're going we're gonna to be okay. We're going to make it. And when was that transition in your head of, wow, I think I, I've done what I set out to do? I think it was about the time I did that last video where we'd come through. There was a really difficult week right after, right after Dutch Harbor. When all I was getting was south wind. It was close hauled for days. Not terrible weather, but stiff enough that everything was wet and I was wet. The boat was wet. We were, weren't making any southing at all. I was heading straight for Portland, Oregon. Nice enough place to go, but it's not where I wanted to go. And it took... I don't know how many days it was. It feels like it was a, at least a week before the weather started to turn. Mm. And I could turn the boat from heading east to due south. And once I started heading due south for San Francisco, I was like, oh, yeah, now we're, we're, we're going to make it. We're going to be okay. Of course, it was, what, in that last three days, four days before San Francisco, that we got one of our worst gales of the entire trip. Um, I wrote about it. I think the article's called Surefoot's Gale on the blog. It just was, it was really intense. Tell us about that. Well, it w there was a, a strong northerly wind coming down, low pressure over the Bay Area, and s some of that offshore wind that recently uh, spurred the Kincaid fire. So weather very much like that over California, but offshore, that was due north and mm -hmm. super strong. And I thought, as I saw it coming, I thought to myself, well, it's, a, it's, it's not like a, a true southern ocean low it's not like it's going to roll over me and i'm going to have northwest west and southwest winds won't have changing it'll just be due north and i'll have current coming from the north so i didn't really expect i knew it was going to get 35 40 knot winds but I didn't expect much in the way of seas so it was quite surprising actually to see over the course of what six or eight ten hours quite a sea stack up i would say 14 18 feet easy and very steep of course i was trying i, I could have just run off 
run due south at that point, but I would have ended up south of San Francisco, and there was just no way I was going to end the figure eight and say um, Los Angeles. <laughs> so I took that. I took that one right on right on the beam, and so that was part of the reason we got beat up so hard. I was you know, taking a big seat and getting pushed over quite a bit. Now, people listening will say, well, you've done so many miles. You were in the Southern Ocean not once but twice, and you've encountered countless storms and huge seas. So, you know, he's an old hand at this. <laughs> Does that factor into a confidence, or is it every time anew? It's most definitely both. Yeah, so in the Southern Ocean, we probably had gale force winds every week or so. And you get used to the the rhythm of that, and you get used to what a difficult-looking low-pressure system on the grib files is going to actually deliver. And you get used to the way the boat handles it and at what point you need to reef down a little bit more and, and things like that. You definitely get into a rhythm of gale handling. That said, as, as strong as Mo is, and she is, I mean, y- you can throw this boat off a sea, knock her all the way down to the windows, have green water up to the dodger here, and the boat just, you know, rolls right back up and keeps on going. So, very strong boat, but the ocean is, you, you definitely know the ocean is always in charge. So, yes, uh, you get comfortable with what you feel the boat can handle, but you also have the sense of when she starts to vibrate, when she starts to hum, when the whole hull is speaking to you, you still get this kind of knot in the pit of your stomach, you know. It, uh, it's, it's still a challenge. Never goes away completely. <laughs> well, you mentioned Molly here, and we're sitting in the cockpit. Um, <laughs> she has served you quite well. And I said when I was climbing aboard, my God, she looks like she's in such good shape having gone around and you said, well, I just see all the projects that I need to do. <laughs> but talk a little bit about the boat's role. You thanked her as you got off and when you were standing in front of the crowd at the Sausalito Yacht Club when you docked. Yeah. Well, you look at me like with some surprise. I mean, <laughs> I think I said in the last video, I owe my life to this boat. And I, I feel that intensely. I got so lucky I looked so hard. I look back, you know, I started the figure eight voyage in 2013. Yeah. And I acquired this boat in 2016. So it was really those, it took me three years to find the boat. And even with all that searching, it was a lot of luck. And you didn't know exactly what you wanted when you started because you were looking well, at very knew, different yes. boats. I knew what I wanted when I started, but I didn't have the right spec. Okay. Right? I didn't, I didn't okay. have enough information to judge what the right boat would be. Right. Um, I... I, I thought at that point I had a sense of what I'd need for the blue water portion of the trip, the Southern Ocean portion of the trip. And I, I knew kind of what capacity I needed for a year's worth of stores and things of that kind. But the Arctic trip in 2014, the Northwest Passage that I went on as a crew member on somebody else's boat, that was the big lesson. I had a really difficult time wrapping my brain around what what is the Northwest Passage and how does one get through mm. super shallow water, poorly charted, with pack ice. I, I'd been sailing for quite a while, but that's that's a different exercise altogether. So yeah. went through in 2014, we saw lots of ice, 30 boats tried that year, and only seven made it through. And all of the seven were either aluminum or steel. 
all of the fiberglass boats turned around and went home for very good reasons. It was a very difficult year. And that turned my head. At that point, I decided that the larger, heavier-duty, older fiberglass boats I had been looking for weren't really going to cut the mustard. And I started looking for aluminum at that point. Luckily, I had happened to bump into Mo, at that point a yacht named Joa, in a little, off a little village called Arctic Bay. And it just blows my mind to think back on that now, that this happenstance meeting, I met this boat on the Northwest Passage in 2014, just out of luck, and fell in love, and even offered to buy the boat right there from the owners, who oddly enough wanted to continue on their own cruise. And you know, I went home and began looking for the right boat in steel or aluminum, had a terrible time because we just don't do steel and aluminum on the West Coast. We don't do it much in, in the States at yeah. all. So I was having a very difficult time finding anything that was in a condition that would allow me to sail away. And, and you'd any, already you know. fallen in love with the boat. Then. And I'd already fallen in love with this boat. Yeah. I just happened to get a call, I think it was two years later, from this couple saying, you know, we've made it through the Arctic. We spent two years. We've overwintered twice. We're now in Homer, Alaska. The boat's on the hard. We are very tired of being cold. We've bought a van. We're moving to Mexico. If you'd like the boat, here it is. And that was, that just changed everything. I think I flew probably within six days. I was in Homer wow. <laughs> taking possession. So you asked me, you know, what is it about Mo that I uh, thank for the trip and really everything. Uh, the boat is beautifully laid out for single handing. She is strong as a tank, as I think I've demonstrated over the two years. <laughs> I'm not the most careful sailor. And so having a boat this strong is really necessary. Uh, she sails beautifully, I think. Uh, she's simply set up, easy to maintain. You know, I fell in love with the boat when I saw it, and I have fallen in love with the boat more over the years of sailing it. It's just, it's just a lucky, lucky for me kind of boat. And you got uh, quite a deal because not only did you get a wonderful boat, but you struck up a friendship with the former owner, Tony Gooch, who can't go unmentioned here. It was on the podcast earlier, and he was valuable, invaluable in your trip. Well, I had no idea of the boat's history when I met it, and even only a little bit of an idea of the boat's history when I bought it. But the owners I bought the boat from, as after I'd signed the paperwork, <laughs> said to me, now be careful, in most ports that you land, somebody on the dock is going to come up to the boat and say, oh, I recognize that boat, that's Tony's boat because there's this guy who used to own this boat named Tony Gooch, and he has sailed everywhere. And I kind of, I put that in my back of my head and, and uh, sat on it for a few months as I sailed around uh, that summer. But yeah, I had the opportunity to meet Tony Gooch fairly soon after buying the boat, and it has been great on many levels. So this is a custom boat built in Germany in 1989. It does not come with a user manual, right? There's, there's nothing on the boat that says push this red button. I don't know how to fix anything when I bought it. So it was really great to be able to get to know Tony who had sailed the boat. I think he sailed the boat for six months every year for about 16 years. And almost all of that sailing was in high latitudes. I think he's been as far north as Spitzenberg. He's been way above the Aleutians and the Bering Sea all the way down to the Antarctic Peninsula. He's been around Cape Horn a couple of times in this boat. And then in 2002, he left on a solo single-handed journey from his home in Victoria down around the south and back to his home. 
in something on the order of 172 days. So he had done, by the time I purchased the boat, he had done all the kinds of sailing that I was looking to do and had tremendous experience. I had some experience, but it was mostly middle latitude stuff. So I, I, I didn't really have a great approach for the Southern Ocean, for example. I was going to simply copy Motessier. Um, but Tony, who had been, honestly, he's probably spent more time in the South than Motessier had, uh, gave me some, some interesting lessons. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And, and apart from just the, the experience that he shared, he's just a great guy. Yeah, he's, He loves yeah. being involved in projects like this. You said he, he, he shared lessons. Was it just through conversations? What was it? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, Tony offered to come help work on the boat. <laughs> he flew up one time just to hang out on the boat for a couple of days. We rebuilt the winches together. Uh, he gave me a tour of the rig. You know, I, 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 what, I probably had 10,000 sailing miles on the boat by then, but he, there was still a lot, there were a lot of little details, right, even in a simple boat like this, that it's very helpful to have someone who's got that kind of experience talking about. And, and another, <laughs> another example would be that this is the first boat I've sailed that has the twin pole double headsail rig. And I just, it, it wasn't set up when I bought the boat. The poles were stowed, all the lines were down. I'd never sailed that kind of a rig before. So I made a couple of attempts out in Kachemak Bay in Homer, Alaska. And really, I have pictures of what my flying the pole skills looked like, and they were pretty bad. So I remember writing to Tony, sometime later and saying, so how do I, you know, help me out with this uh, the fore guy, after guy, top and lift thing again? I think I got like a three-page essay from him on how to, how to rig the poles and how to fly them and when to tuck in the sails, and uh, it was great. He, uh, he, really enjoyed, he really enjoyed being involved, and I really enjoyed his friendship for sure. Since we're talking about people without whom the figure eight wouldn't have been possible, I have to mention your wife, Joanne. <laughs> she was supportive from the beginning of your trip. You've talked about that before. I want to hear a little bit about your relationship through figure eight attempts one and two. Yeah. We were joking about that this morning. Joanna was delivered a Facebook memory today in which she posted on Facebook, my husband is leaving for a year's cruise. He won't be back for 365 days, something like that. And the date of that posting was October 2010. <laughs> I departed in October of 2010 on my little 30-foot catch for a cruise around the Pacific. The goal was San Francisco to Mexico to Hawaii and home, solo. And that was the first time, she likes to remind me, that I took off on a one-year cruise that ended up being a two-year cruise. <laughs> so I didn't actually get home until 2013 from that one-year cruise because once I got to Mexico, I realized that everybody there was headed to French Polynesia, which I'd never heard of the Marquesas. They sound lovely. Joanna, don't you think I should come home via French Polynesia? So she's kind of gotten used to this, and it's a, it's a little joke that we have now. Every time I leave on a cruise, it will probably be at least double in time uh, than the budget. It, it would be difficult for me to describe to you know, in the cockpit of Mo on a nice sunny afternoon, how supportive my wife is. I think it is not an exaggeration to say that without Joanna, uh, my single-handing experiences simply wouldn't be. I have grand ideas, but it really takes someone to say, great, that's, a, that's cool, nice you have an idea, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to make that real? 
And that's been Joanna. Joanna's the one who pushes me. She says, yeah, I think you can do that. Yeah, I think you should do that. And then a few months later, it's like, you better go do that or stop talking about it. I call her my enabler. Yeah. She's really the one who, who makes the project go. I know it looks like it's all me. It's just me and the boat. But it's real, my wife is really indispensable in, in that way. And during the trip, how was her support while you were out at sea? You mean on, a, on a daily basis? On a daily basis, okay. yeah. Well, we communicated every day from sea. Uh, short email in the morning, a short email at night, usually. I tend to be the talky one uh, because I type quickly and I have the time. And Joanna, you know, she's the CEO of a little startup company of her own, so she's extraordinarily busy all the time. Yeah. But we, we communicated every day. I didn't talk on the phone very much, actually. I had the ability to, do, to have satellite phone calls. But I'm not much of a telephone guy, and you know we've done this enough now. This is my, I think, by the time I got to the Figure Eight Voyage 2.0, this was my fifth time taking off on a in a fairly serious cruise for a, an extended time. So we we know I'm coming back. We communicate every day, but it's not dramatic stuff, right? It's just mm -hmm. touch, you know, touch base. Yeah, you know, touch and base. It's important to and, keep and that up. It is, oh, for sure. So I'm the one who writes. I'm mm -hmm. the one who puts the sentences together and doesn't always know when to stop doing that. My wife is not that way, and I would always <laughs> chide her. I said, can you please write more? I want to hear about more of what's going on at the house. How's the backyard? And did you take the trash out on Tuesday? And you know, I was the one who would And she's so busy and supporting me in other ways that being chatty in email is not her, not her <laughs> thing. <laughs> Just go sail, Randall. Yeah, keep right. Keep busy. <laughs> keep, keep the boat going, dude. <laughs> Speaking of Joanne, you wrote and you talked a lot about being back at home and the joys of being back at home. And, well, now here you are. The transition has got to be tough. Talk about that a bit. It's interesting. It, it, it has actually been more difficult than I anticipated. I don't think I can talk about it too intelligently just yet. I'm still kind of in it. So I'm speaking to you from, like, I'm inside the transition, right? Right. Uh, it's been difficult. I think it's been difficult partly because it's surprising that it's difficult. I've come back a lot. I've left and come back a number of times. But this is the first time I've left and come back and didn't have another project ahead of me, didn't have another date for departure ahead of me. This is the first time I've come back having been successful at something pretty big that I had been envisioning. I've been working on the figure eight voyage since 2013. And all of a sudden, it's done. Well, I wasn't anticipating that. You know, now what? <laughs> I don't really know. So that cha that is challenging. Everybody asks me, well, what's next? And I, I don't know. I'll spend the winter at home with Joanna cooking souffles. I really don't have a sense other than beginning to take the project and to beginning to take the story and putting it in, into a single format that would, that mm -hmm. would be interesting to people. And even that, you know, beginning to envision that is, is challenging. I think it's also challenging for me this time, and this is a big surprise as well, because being back among people, or, or maybe more specifically, being back in civilization has been more difficult than, than it has for me in the past. You know, I can recall sailing to Hawaii, for example, and after that 16 or 18 days, I pull into the Aloha Yacht Harbor, which is right downtown Waikiki in Honolulu. And thinking how fun that was, you know, to be, to be in the middle of this raging city 
after so many days by myself. And so to have that experience kind of on steroids, to have come back into San Francisco after so many years now at sea, it, to have that be a bit of a shock to the system is, is surprising. You know, getting on a six-lane freeway. I, when Joanna says, what should we do today, my sweet? And I say, I don't care as long as we don't drive. <laughs> we can <laughs> go anywhere. I just don't want to get in a car. I don't want to get on a freeway. I don't want to go. No, I don't want to go Whole, Food, Whole Foods again because I, the, the mass of people just is driving me nuts. And uh, it is so surprising to experience again just the inundation that is just everyday life in the urban world. Uh, and not just from the you know the, the noise of, of cars and the noise of freeways, but to the, the mass of media that is thrown at you. And I have so, gotten so used to, I guess, being on my own, where you know the only inflow is messaging from the boat and messaging from the, the waves. And uh, I love that. And I love the city. I've lived here most of my adult life, but it's been a challenge. It has. As one of the culprits focusing the lens on you after <laughs> your return. Talk a little bit about, about that attention. <coughs> CNN, you're a cover boy now, Latitude 38. <laughs> what was that like? Is that like, is it still going on? It, it was pretty intense for about five days, and then it tailed off pretty quickly, which was perfect, actually. It was a lot of fun, coming in the Golden Gate Bridge, having the flotilla out there, so many people in the flotilla that I knew, uh, several people who had seen me off at least once, was just grand. Pulling into the Sausalito Yacht Club, having my friends and family there, and the media there was was a hoot. I really enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun. I was high as a kite, as it were, on that energy. Talking about the figure eight voyage, love it, right? I have no problem with that as long as people are interested. I'm happy to chat about the project. So that has been a lot of fun and also difficult, right? It's very invasive in its way. So that it didn't continue for a long time was fine with me. It's tailed off a little bit. You know, the breaking news aspect of the figure eight is long gone. Uh, there are still a few outlets that are interested in feature stories, but it's a different kind of pressure. Very fun and short-lived and that was quite all right. And that's fine. Yep. Tony talked about when, when we chatted on this podcast, spoke about how his solo circumnavigation had really become something internal for him that he could hold on to and use. And I'm curious if that takes time. He did that 20 years ago. Right. Or that's something that you already feel. That's a really interesting question to me. And he's, of course, we have talked about that, right? He says, you know, be careful, Randall, because forevermore you'll be known as that guy who did the figure eight. And part of you will really love that, and part of you might find that annoying after a while. But to that idea of you carrying around this internal knowledge that you have done something pretty extraordinary, whether or not it was in a kind of a global sense or not, it was something extraordinary to you because it was a big project that you envisioned and you planned and you executed and were eventually successful. I don't feel that yet. And I find that kind of odd, right? I should, I feel like I should be reveling at this point in that kind of success. And I'm not, it, it's, I've, I've, I said on the blog a few days ago, I'm back to being a regular Joe, 
which is not a bad thing. I, I'm quite happy with, with it, but I'm a little surprised, I guess, that the f that feeling has happened so quickly. And so I wonder if maybe the reflective qualities of having done a project or participated in a project like this take a while to mature. So maybe Tony's had a similar experience. Maybe Tony took a while to kind of get to that place where he was able to hold the project in his heart, as it were. That's really interesting. One of the most engaging aspects, I think, of the figure eight story is your persistence. Hmm. There were two attempts. And so I want to get into your mindset a little bit after, uh, well, in the decision-making process. You had a huge decision to make when you were in Tasmania. Do you continue on? Do you try? Or do you go home? So let's start there. That must have been difficult, to say the least. Well, the, there were difficult aspects to it, but I had made up my mind long before arriving in Hobart that I wanted to start over. So what was it, probably February when Mo was knocked down so hard that a window in the pilot house shattered and filled the boat with water and killed all the electronics. Pretty clear at that point, I had to put in to Hobart for repairs. Hobart, I think, was a m another month of sailing away. And so I had a lot of time to think about what was next. The options were to continue from Hobart back to Cape Horn, then up the Atlantic and through the Northwest Passage, basically just keep on with the project as planned, or hang out in Hobart through the seasons. One of the challenges was if I left Hobart after the repairs, I would be positioning myself at Cape Horn in the middle of winter, and I would be just barely on time on my Arctic arrival. And I had demonstrated through two crash landings of that first uh, figure eight attempt that uh, on time was really not something that was in the cards for me. So I didn't, I did not want to leave Hobart and continue on with the figure eight. That felt too dangerous. Just felt dumb, too big of a risk. And, and I also didn't want to hang out. And one of the options was hang out, do a little sightseeing, sail right. down to New Zealand, you know, write some blogs about what it's like and then continue on the next year. That also felt very much like a break in the story for me. I didn't like that at all. And then the challenge, the real big challenge for me psychologically was I had envisioned the figure eight as a nonstop from San Francisco down around the Southern Ocean, twice around Cape Horn, and then up to St. John's. That was the vision. Oh, I, wanted, I really wanted that nonstop, really long leg. And I'd blown it because I'd put it into Ushuaia and then I put it into Hobart. So pretty quickly, it probably took less time to get to there than it has for me to explain it to you, but I pretty quickly realized, you know, I, I want to just sail home and start over. I've learned a lot. I just want to do this again. And when you think about doing it again, was it, man, uh, that was bad luck, or I can do this better? Oh, both, for sure. Uh, there's a lot of bad luck involved, but there was a lot of I can definitely do this better. I had made, well, I had never really experienced heavy weather. Yeah. I'd never really experienced heavy weather in this boat. So that, that first circumnavigation taught me a lot about how to handle the difficult weather in this boat. I knew going into the, to the big weather that I wanted to sail through it rather than sit out on a drogue. And I knew the boat could do it. But as I look 
looked back on it at that point, I realized that although I had been sailing through the heavy weather, I'd been sailing too slowly. I had not had enough sail up to keep, especially as what happens in the, the latter phases of, of a gale is that the, the, wet, the wind starts to come down, but as the wind comes down, remember the wind is falling onto the water, so it's, the high winds are actually holding the waves down. So as the wind comes off, the seas come up. <laughs> They're actually much larger in that last third of a gale than they are uh, during, the, during the middle of it. And so what I, I wasn't moving then from storm sail to larger sails. I was just, I was continuing to sail in those latter sections of the gale on the storm sail. I wasn't at enough speed. Without speed, the monitor doesn't have enough feedback to steer the boat. And that's what was, I felt was really getting me into trouble. So on the second figure eight, I, I didn't use the storm sail once. The storm sail, which was on a bag, in a bag, on the bow, stayed in a bag on the bow the whole time. And I sailed the whole figure eight 2.0, that 110 days, Cape Horn to Cape Horn, on the trusty number two Genoa. That's Just rolled it in and rolled it out. So, It's learning the boat. It's learning the boat. It's, it's learning the boat and le learning the weather. And learning the weather. Um, and the two aren't one, but they, they act so much in concert that you, mm -hmm. you're learning both as you learn one with the other. Yeah. yeah I want to finish off a question. You had asked me a little bit about the decision in Hobart. Mm -hmm. So truly, th by the time I got to Hobart, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to sail back home and start over. I knew I had the time. I could get home within, you know, leaving myself two or three months to get ready for the, the second attempt. I knew the boat at that point. She didn't need much work. I didn't need to reprovision and do some sail repair, but that was about it. The real challenge in Hobart <laughs> was that I had to pop the question to my lovely wife, mm. who I had not, I had not, I'd been communicating via inReach, which is 145 characters, just a Twitter type uh, communication, and that's fine but it's not the way you want to have a more complex conversation with your wife about, by the way, honey, I'm going to be gone for two years rather than one on this figure eight, which you had hoped would be over. Remember that conversation we had a few years yeah, ago? Right. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> well, she picked up on that right away. So she's not letting me live that one down. <laughs> so that's, that's how the Hobart thing. And again, you know, when I popped this question in Mexico in 2011, Honey, instead of sailing to Hawaii and home, I'm going to sail to French Polynesia, Hawaii, Alaska, and home. Her response was, and I had, a, I knew what the objections should be, and I had practiced my responses. But her response was simply, after thinking about it for a moment, I think you should do that. That's all. And it was pretty much the same in Hobart. Once I explained the rationale between, be, behind sailing home and starting over, she said in her mysterious wisdom, Yes, I understand. I think you should do that. And I just, uh, ah, lucky to have the right boat, lucky to have the right wife for this kind of uh, venturing. She's yeah. been super supportive. That's wonderful. What is it about single-handed sailing, blue water sailing, that attracts you? When did you first single-hand? <clears throat> I didn't start sailing until fairly late. I was in high school when Dad bought the first boat. It was a Hunter 30. You know, classic plastic boat. I learned to sail on the rivers of Stockton, 80 miles north and east of here. And I knew right away this was pretty damn cool. I really enjoyed sailing, and I felt very in the groove pretty much immediately. I liked the first day, the first afternoon, when the wind 
caught the sails, and the boat heeled over and charged off. And I, oh, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, well, very good then. <laughs> and the challenge I always had with sailing with the family, I have a sister, mother, father, four of us on this little boat, was it wasn't enough to do because I wanted to do everything. I loved everything about sailing, uh, everything about managing the boat, navigating, piloting, everything. I wanted to do it all. And so I think really that the largest, for me, attraction to single-handing is that I get to be involved in every aspect of making the boat go. And now it's true, I've, I've only crewed, I think, two or three times on ocean passages. Two times, actually. And there is this element of the more people on a boat, the more complicated it gets. You know, they, they say when you're looking for crew for a, an ocean cruise, you don't look for skill, you look for psychological compatibility. Mm. Because you're in this tiny space for a long period of time, and it's not helping you out because it's jumping around, and it doesn't have a microwave, and you know all, this, all stuff's going wrong all the time. And yeah. so even the nicest people tend to show their crabbier side after a while. So that, I think that's part of it for me as well. I like solitude. I enjoy being alone on the ocean. I enjoy seeing the ocean unfiltered through somebody else's perceptions, just my perceptions, just mm -hmm. what I'm seeing. I guess maybe I'm confused by other people. Um, so uh, It's not a really dislike enjoy. of other people. Sorry? It's not a dislike of no, other no, people. No, 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 not at all. I, I don't, I, there are a lot of, uh, not that I've met them, but I, there are, I'm told a lot of single-handers who have a hard time putting sentences together and really, you know, well, dislike I, people I'm going to say so. this is not meant with any... Uh-oh. Disrespect when my wife said we have a, a map of your route on, on our kitchen wall. The girls have been following, as you know, um, and people inevitably ask about it. And we tell them and they give us this quizzical look. And my wife's response is, no, no, no. I mean, he's surprisingly normal, <laughs> nice guy for going off and doing this. <laughs> I know. It really cracks me up. I, I get great pleasure out of that. I remember reading Sir Robin Knox Johnson's book, A World of My Own. That's really the only thing I remember about that book is the title, In a World of My Own. And that is absolutely the feeling. Everything you can see is yours. Yeah. I mean, not to trade with somebody else for cash. It's not like you, you can put it in the bank, but you're in this environment entirely and utterly, and you're not... Now, this sounds terrible when I put it in words, and you're not sharing it with anyone. And something about the sharing sounds terrible now that I'm trying to say it. There is something about the sharing that dilutes the experience a little bit. And I think that's very different from other people. I think a lot of other people would say, having someone on board, oh, so we just saw a big whale. Wasn't that awesome? Wow, it's a beautiful whale. I'm so glad you were here to share that experience with me. I don't have that feeling. Okay, but Does that, that goes to the question of you were sharing your experiences oh. through your writing. <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, Tony yeah. and I talked a little bit about this because there are so many people out there now sailing and sharing their experiences through videos and sharing their experiences through podcasts. And, um, <laughs> but <clears throat> what's the balance of having it be for you and what? wanting to tell that story? That's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I'm not sure I know how to answer that question. So I've just, I've just argued 
that uh, that's the solo piece that is really important to me. And now you're asking me why is why is it that I wish to, sh to share that solo experience <laughs> with so many people? I, I don't know the answer. That's an excellent question. I will take that. Maybe we can pick that up on our next yeah. figure eight podcast. But I'll say it has something to do with I have I have wanted to write since I was young, and I've never felt. I was reading about Michael Crichton today, a Jurassic Park sure. author. He was writing novels while he was in med school. I mean, talk about an overachiever. My godfather was his professor in med school and has a story. Of he was in class, and Michael was furiously writing away in class, and Ted walks over to him and says, Michael, M Michael, what are you doing? He says, I'm just working on a, a book called Andromeda Strain. Yeah, <laughs> so I was, I was reading about him in that regard just the other day. and So that's not me. I have not been overflowing with story in my life. And so I think part of the initiative for me is that I, sailing gives me story, a story that I feel intimately involved with and love writing about. And quite frankly, I don't publish to be heard I've been shocked at the number of people who are following or have followed the figure eight voyage. Really surprises me, actually, given your point about there are so many other people out there sharing similar types of experiences. And I didn't really write the figure eight blog so you could read it. I wrote it because I really wanted to write it. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And I think that is why so many people read it. You First, you're doing something quite different than a lot of others out there, quite ambitious, and you've, your achievement has been incredible. But you're writing it from such a personal place with such your own voice mm. that it resonates with people. They hear that. So thank you. That's really flattering. And it's been a lot of fun to find that voice and to be able to express that. It's also been a good discipline, right? I'm, so I'm by myself. And if you read about, especially the old sailors, just having a routine and having a discipline was really important. And I found that to be true. There were, were times in the voyage when sitting down in the afternoon and writing the blog was not anything even remotely close to what I wanted to do. I wanted to sleep, but it was part of the routine, right? Yeah. Usually I started, if the weather was right, I'd start writing around four, I'd like to be done by around six. It, so it's a part of the afternoon. It's just it's a part of what we do, yeah. you know. And and I that was very helpful for me to have the, that as one element of the daily discipline. Well, it's good practice for that book that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I want to send a message to Joanne through you <laughs> to have her tell you to get on it just like she did with the figure eight. <laughs> oh, believe me, she does not need that encouragement. She has been on me already. <laughs> Good. Good, because we're all anxious to read it. Okay. Um, no, it's, but very much so because we've all enjoyed what you've written so far. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to ask you the what's next question because I know we're, we're too close to, to <laughs> wrapping up. But um, what's your relationship with Molly right now? We're sitting aboard her. Uh, it's a little difficult, frankly, because this boat, what, she's almost 30 years old, and I think she's probably one of the 
busiest private yachts in history. She has sailed almost every year, if not every year, since being built, and usually ocean crossings and high-latitude work and things like that. Not chartering, just as a private boat. So I know that the boat wants to keep moving, and right now I intend, fully intend to sit out the winter. We'll see what the summer brings. I really don't know. But uh, what to do with the boat, how to not be overwhelmed with, I thank you very much for saying that the boat looks great and looks in wonderful condition. <laughs> but I, I can see all kinds of sure. things that need working on, and I haven't even made a list yet. So uh, that, you know, how to not be overwhelmed by things that you'd like to do to improve uh, the boat while you're doing other projects has been a bit of a challenge. But we'll see. We'll make it. We'll make it. The Moe's solid boat, and I just, I really want to make sure she keeps moving. Yeah. This question popped into my head yep. when we were talking earlier. You were the first one ever to do the figure eight. Are you in touch with Guinness? Is it, is it a world record officially? Where does that stand? Yeah, it's, as my wife says, it's a fiddle. So I think the answer is yes, it's an official first. But it was kind of a shock to me to realize that you have to prove that at least as far as I'm aware so far. I've only begun that process, and it's a process of proving to the Guinness World Record people that yours is a first. So quite a while ago, I received a document from a guy who wanted to be listed in the World Record books as the first figure eight. Now, in his, his case, he was describing a cruise that was around the Americas in a figure eight going through Panama. Mm. So a very different cruise. But what blew me away was that his submission to the Guinness World Record book people was a 50-page document with outreach to every yacht club in the world, asking them if they'd ever heard of anyone who'd ever done that cruise before. So I've started that process, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it, but it's a, it's a process of describing what you've done and then verifying to the best of your own personal ability. Right. Uh, so, yes. I would think that the blog is... Excellent documentation for that. I sure I hope so. That yeah. and the tracker, yeah. Yeah, and the tracker. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for me, I think it's less a challenge proving what I've done. It will be an interesting challenge demonstrating in, in some kind of way that works for them that it, this is a first. It is a, I've yeah. never talked to any other sailor who has ever heard of anyone even contemplating this kind of a voyage before. Yeah. Um, but the, the world record people don't know from, you know, Hill of Beans. Sure. Uh, so we'll see. Anything else that we haven't talked about? Yeah, you always ask me that question. Yeah, I think I, I put always you on answer the spot. with no. Um, well, now's your chance. To yeah, now's my chance, yeah. No, I just I've really enjoyed our conversations. I really appreciate the interest. It's a lot of fun being able to tell the story. Uh, and uh, I hope uh, hope it can continue. I hope I have a, a really brilliant idea in the next six or eight months about the next flight of the Moli. I am confident that this will <laughs> not be our last conversation. <laughs> But yeah. thank you again for joining this time and all the times before, Randall. Well, Ben, thank you. Thank you for the interest. It's been a lot of fun. While the figure eight voyage is done, Randall is still writing occasionally on his blog. So you can check it out, figure8voyage.com. That's figure the number eight, voyage.com. And I thought I'd mentioned if you missed last week's show, episode 29 with Tony Gooch, you might really enjoy it after listening to this conversation in which we talked about Tony. That's all for this week. I'm Ben Shaw, your host and producer. 
Thanks for listening, and until next time, smooth sailing. Smooth sailing.